0: Hi, welcome to Pitttown Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. We're now going to have a look at God's Word, and we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. That's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan which operates by faith. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have deviated from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and for whoever else and for whoever else who is contrary to the sound teaching based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning everyone. And good morning to all of those in TV land, iPad land, iPod land and whatever else as well. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father please guard and guide what I say and please help us to have our hearts opened and our minds open to your word change us as you will we pray this in Jesus name amen i googled a personality test based on disney characters and i was promised quote this in-depth personality test will reveal which disney character you are with accuracy. So after doing the 23 questions, uh, one of the questions was, are you a follower or a leader? And um, you might be able to guess uh, what I came out as, as a Disney character. My result was that I am like Pumbaa, (laughs) the the warthog from uh, The Lion King. You see, apparently, quote, I'm incredibly lovable... And the best friend a person could ask for. I'm a jokester who doesn't take myself too seriously and is always down for a laugh. I've got a big heart and everyone loves me. Now, remember, that's 100% accurate. (laughs) Now, don't worry if you take the test because I've cheated. I've uh, tried to do uh, answers uh, differently. All the descriptions of all the Disney characters are very positive. Apparently, no one is like the evil queen or Scar, uh, there is an ac- actually a Disney villain's personality uh, test that you can do. Now, I know some of you uh, may have even done the uh, more upmarket s- uh psychometric tests like Myers-Briggs or Disc Model or the Australian Caliper Profile or whatever trend is, is out now. Um, There's a lot of critics who put the scientific base of all of these tests pretty much on the same level as the Disney character test. I I don't know. But let's have some fun for a moment and play the game. Are you a follower or a leader? And as I ask that question, did you resist being put into either category? We're starting our new series on 1 Timothy chapters 1 to 3. And when we read a book like 1 Timothy, Timothy, there's a danger of seeing yourself only as a follower or a leader. If we pigeonhole ourselves too quickly, you can tune out to the very point that God is actually speaking to you. So when God refers to those exercising some sort of leadership, the followers think they can have a sleep. Or when he calls us, Followers, the leaders immediately start planning on how to help all the followers follow better and not think it applies to them. Well, the truth is that uh, biblical leaders never graduate from being followers of the Lord Jesus as revealed in God's word. And the newest of the followers of Jesus should start their training to lead others to Christ as soon as they can. We are called to make disciples, that is to lead others to follow Christ, using God's word and the skills that God has given you. So in that sense, making a distinction between leaders and followers can be misleading. It's obvious in 1 Timothy that Paul takes on the role of the leader and Timothy is the follower. But Paul leads by opening up God's word and modelling how to be a follower, disciple of Jesus. He models by consistently living with the good news that he's teaching. 1 Timothy is uh, part of a set of Paul's letters that is uh, known as the pastoral epistles. And the temptation again is to think that this is only relevant to pastors or church leaders. Wrong. Uh, my goal is to actually wet everyone's appetite for reading 1 Timothy and listening to the sermons and studying this letter privately and also in groups and applying it to your situation at any given time. And uh, because this is the introductory sermon, uh, we're going to get a bird's eye view of the book and we're going to do it in three steps. Uh, So just be ready for this. Step one, we'll start at the end in chapter six to see who it is written for. Step two, we'll then go to the middle in chapter three to see why Paul wrote this letter. And then step three, finally, to the beginning in chapter one, to see how we are to live as God's people. So the first two steps are pretty quick, but we'll spend more time on step three. And this will be our preparation as we Uh, spend the six weeks looking deeper into what God has to tell us in 1 Timothy chapters 1 to 3. Step one, are you ready? Let's leap to the end. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 to 21. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent, empty speech and contradictions from the knowledge that bears that name, that falsely bears that name. So it's written for Timothy and to Timothy. Uh, Verse 21 says, by professing it, some people have deviated from the faith. And he finishes with this last sentence, which is the one I want you to think about. Grace be with all of you. Did you catch the significance of that? At the very end of this personal letter, the Holman translation is really helpful here because it clearly shows the final blessing is addressed to more than just Timothy. Everyone else is supposed to be reading this as well in the church. Some modern versions simply say, grace be with you. And you don't know if the word you is supposed to be singular or plural. Well, the modern that's modern English for you. Uh, the language that Paul wrote in, in the Greek, and it's definitely plural. The church was supposed to be reading this along with Timothy because the best way for Timothy... To guard what he has been entrusted with, that is the gospel, which is revealed to the, uh, through the Bible, the best way to guard the gospel is for him to share it with the church, the church which is God's family, in case he dies or is carted off to prison. They were supposed to be reading along with Timothy to think about how the gospel is thread all the way through the Bible. Explaining what it is and how to live a life that is in line with the gospel, in line with that message. And we who have been given the privilege and the responsibility of living in this present time, for as long as God gives you and you and you and you and you and me, we need to take God's word seriously too. Because when you know something is important, it will always change you in some way, always. It might change specific behaviours or it might deepen your resolve to continue or stop some particular behaviour. It might deepen your level of hope. This word is meant for me. Perhaps you actually need to speak to yourself right now and say, this word is meant for me on, do it. Okay, well, why is it meant for you? Step two, we've got to jump back to the middle. 1 Timothy chapter three, verses 14 and 16. Why did Paul write this letter? I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to act in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly, the mystery, a better word there really is, the secret of godliness is great. He, that is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, Taken up in glory, that seems a funny way of um, saying about what is so important for uh, Paul to to communicate, that bit about the angels. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, some of you have read some of his books. He's uh, written some really life-changing books for a lot of Christians. He made a point that whenever he went to a campus on a university, he would always, in his talk about Christianity, bring up the subject of angels. That it seems weird, but the reason why he did it was, as soon as you talk about angels, you're talking about something supernatural. You're not talking about a Jesus who is sort of disconnected from the reality of what the Bible talks about, that Jesus came from heaven. It's a supernatural, it's a spiritual truth, a reality. And so you can't just put Jesus back into, well, he was an just an historical character who lived and people misinterpreted what he said, or maybe he had delusions of grandeur, or maybe he was just plain crazy. Paul made it very clear which Jesus he's talking about here. So step two is to know that the purpose of the letter for Timothy is to know how God's family is to act or behave based on who Jesus is. The leader has to be clear on this or the church won't function as it should. Um, I wasn't sure how I can say this in a way that won't be offensive to some people because I know you you love your families. Well, might be an assumption there. Um, Paul makes it clear that the church should act like a family. We should act like a family because we are a family. We are God's household. That's the reality. Because it's God's household, we are a family that actually exists into eternity. We're more strongly bonded than our physically families, according to God's word. If you are in God's family, you will never be able to escape from any of your family members forever. Doesn't that warm your heart? (laughs) The good news is that we'll be changed to be like Jesus, so it won't be a struggle anymore. Um, And we can think about how we ought to act is another way of God saying that he doesn't want his family to be dysfunctional to the point of being ineffective. We are to be about following God's goals for his family. It's why this sermon series is entitled God's Household. So step two is about the purpose of 1 Timothy. We are to act as members of God's household. And now we're taking the big jump step right back to the beginning, which is the text that we had read out to us. Um, Chapter one, verses one to 11, to see how we are to live as God's family. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God, the father and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Timothy is a fresh pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he's more than just a protege or an apprentice of Paul. He's like a beloved son. He is a beloved son. Timothy has been nurtured by Paul to carry on the family business, God's family business, serving the church with all the skills that God has given him. Paul can't be there in person, at least for now, so he has to rely on first century Roman communication, which is a letter. Verse three, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine. The word doctrine is often seen as a dirty word. I just want the plain old Christianity, you know, uh, don't put all these beliefs and things on. I'm I'm just going to love Jesus. Well, a lot of people love a Jesus that's different from the Jesus in the Bible. The word doctrine here that Paul uses is an important word and it's also a dangerous word even today. You see, the the word doctrine means a teaching that is to be accepted, and in this case, accepted by the church that belongs to Jesus. And Jesus sent his apostles, those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus, and they were commissioned by Jesus to announce the good news of Jesus and to teach only what Jesus taught them, to teach them doctrine from Jesus. This is important. This is not just intellectual This is not just airy-fairy stuff. This is what Jesus wants the church to know. But us Australians, we live in a pluralistic society that teaches all ideas are equally valid unless it gets in the way of pursuing the great Australian dream, which is to be left alone in order to live a peaceful, uninterrupted, unchallenged life where God has been basically put into a box and brought out maybe at convenient times like births, deaths and marriages. In reality, pluralism is a doctrine itself. It's a belief that is being taught by our culture, held by our culture. And it tries to look tolerant, but basically is intolerant of anyone who disagrees with that position. And as soon as someone defends pluralism by arguing that they are right, they're actually saying that someone else who holds a different view is wrong. You can't be a consistent pluralist. When Christians say that Jesus is the only way to God the Father, that's consistent. That's not a pluralist statement at all. That gets pluralists uh, sort of up in arms very quickly. But the church can fall into the trap of worrying about what our pluralist society is saying. We don't want to be seen as intolerant. So we let people get away with fundamental lies about the essence of Christianity, which is the gospel or the good news of Jesus. In particular, we see it in 1 Timothy 3.14. It's about the mystery. As I said, a better word really is secret, the secret of godliness. It's a secret, it's something that's been hidden and now it's been opened when Jesus came along. And what is it? It's the doctrine of Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. That there, There's a whole lot of doctrines packed into that. And this will be unpacked over the next uh, six weeks. But if anyone takes away from understanding Jesus as how he is described here, he must be instructed or she must be instructed not to teach different doctrine. The gospel which focuses on Jesus is not an opinion. It's a proclamation coming from the true king of Australia and indeed the world, King Jesus. It's not a new gospel. A new gospel is not the gospel. This is the gospel that started right back in Genesis. The gospel is essential Christianity. It deals with what kind of God the Bible teaches about. And it deals with the kind of salvation that is being proclaimed. And if someone is teaching something different, it's dangerous. Not only dangerous, but it's deadly dangerous. And it's worth dying on that hill for. It's going to be hard for Timothy. Sometimes a person comes into the church or comes under some Bible teacher on TV who tries to persuade the rest of the church about a certain new take on the Bible that no one has ever seen before. Now, there's a very helpful book I would recommend. It's called Finding the Right Hills to Die On by an author called Gavin Ortland, O-R-T-L-U-N-D finding the right hills to die on. And he talks about first rank doctrines, which are essential for understanding and believing the gospel. So first rank doctrines are teachings like Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Um, God physically came to earth as the second person in the Trinity. Only Jesus's Life, death and resurrection provides the basis for the forgiveness of sins. When it comes to what we should hold as first rank doctrines, uh, another writer, Wayne Grudem, uh, he, he suggests that these are the questions that we shouldn't ask. What's the things worth dying for? What are the things that we should hold on to no matter what? He says, don't let these questions control you. Don't ask, are the advocates of this idea my friends? Don't let that be the controller. Don't let are they nice people be the controller. Bad question. Don't let will we lose money or members if we exclude that doctrine because it's it's much safer. Or will the academic community criticise us for being too narrow-minded? And the last one that he suggests... Uh, Don't let this be the thing that controls these first rank doctrines. Will someone take us to court over this? It could happen. We should not use those kinds of questions to guide us to what we will defend to the death. What we should be asking is how clear is the Bible on this doctrine? What is the Bible clearly teaching? What is this doctrine's importance to the gospel? An example is justification by grace through faith alone. Another would be the incarnation. God became flesh. God entered the world as a real human. The Christmas story is true. The Easter story is true. Not the stories you see in the shops, but the story that you read in God's word. It is important not to make something that is not essential essential to the gospel more important than it really is. Can you see the distinction there? A a first level doctrine, don't make something first level when it shouldn't be. An example would be to raise the musical style or, or other personal tastes as the main thing, the main focus on to complain about. It's a helpful exercise to actually do a bit of self-analysis and think about what irks you in church. And then when you've identified what irks you, to be able to say, is this a first-rank doctrine issue or not? That's a good place to go first, I think. You see, the gospel is more important than baptism. It's more important than the Lord's Supper. The gospel is more important than uh, women's ministry. The gospel is more important than all of the important things, but they're not the most important thing. We can talk about the other things, but let's not make it the number one uh, first rank uh, doctrines. That's what Paul is worried about, that in Ephesus and throughout every church, there's going to be people who will come along and take away 1st rank doctrines and put second-rate, third-rate and not even Bible-rated doctrines in as first importance. We need to know what the message of the gospel is. But notice what the false teachers were focusing in on, on verse 4. They pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. They promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by... Faith. As we go through 1 Timothy, we'll see some more aspects of what these false teachers were promoting. And Paul focuses on Jewish myths in Titus 1.14, which he he calls an alternative to the truth in 2 Timothy 4.4. 4. Paul saw their teachings as nonsense, flights of fancy, where they made haphazard connections to the Old Testament that were only controlled by their imaginations and not by God's word. Every now and again, a new thing surfaces in the Christian media, like, uh, I don't know if you remember this, the blood moon prophecies back in 2015. Uh, Supposedly, when four consecutive lunar eclipses with six moons in between eventuated in 2015, Uh, That would be the fulfilment of the books of Joel and Revelation and expect to see Jesus come back straight away. Books were written, videos were made, television deals were signed, people got rich. The date came and went. What you find with false teachers is that they don't focus on the gospel. They focus on peripheral things. And I suspect that 2,000 years ago, they were dynamic teachers... Speakers who knew how to make friends and influence people, but did not understand the power of the gospel to shape a person's life deeply from the inside. Paul shared the real gospel-driven goal for Timothy to follow in verses uh, five and six. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith Some have deviated from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. Idle talk. These false teachers, they weren't just wrong giving false information, but they were leading people away from living fruitful, spiritually healthy lives. Verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. But we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. Do you understand how the Old Testament connects with the New Testament? Paul warns Timothy that it's not only their doctrine, but it's their lives. The lives of these these false teachers that they're spiritually up the pole. Their connection between their beliefs and their behaviour will always show up. The falseness. Of both their doctrine and their lives. In verse 9, we know that the law is, and this is him having a dig now at these false teachers. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers. And for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. I wonder if that rings a bell for you of something in the Old Testament. Yeah, what Paul is doing here, it's a reminder about using the Old Testament in a Christian way. Paul affirms that the Old Testament is good. Its purpose is to show people that they don't live according to the revealed will of God. And that's sin. Sin. It's for the lawless and the rebellious, for the ungodly and the sinful. How does Paul profile the kind of person who needs the law? Well, it's that weird list, the weird, strange list of sins. Until you remember that Paul said these false teachers were mucking up what the Old Testament was really teaching. And as we go through the list, you can imagine Timothy actually saying, I know this list. Or at least I know what it's applying from the Old Testament. It's about applying the the Ten Commandments. The law was given to Israel on Mount Sinai. Israel, that band of slaves who had been redeemed from Egypt and now being taken to the promised land, now that they are free, how should they live? And Paul reminds Timothy from what he's been taught as a child by his mother and his grandmother. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, that is those without God, not putting God into their lives and sinful for the unholy and irreverent. Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. You see, that's as godly as you can get to put God first. Ungodliness is not putting God first. And then Paul goes on to say, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, Exodus 20, honor your mother and your father. For murderers, Exodus 20, you shall not murder. For the sexually immoral and homosexuals, Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery. For kidnappers or slave traders, Exodus 20, you shall not steal. For liars and perjurers, Exodus 20, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. Paul will say later in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching and for rebuking and for correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's where godliness comes from, from going to God's word and trusting in God. God's way of salvation. But all the false teachers could offer were myths and endless genealogies that promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Timothy was to have nothing to do with that and keep focused on Jesus, who is our one and only certain hope. As we continue through 1 Timothy, we're going to get a clearer picture of God's household from God's perspective. May God give us ears to hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to lead well by following Jesus more closely. Help us to follow well by leading others to follow Jesus more closely. Please guide us by your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, to be a fruitful, functional family as we put our hope in our elder brother and saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen.